Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Solar in particular, it's a very fast moving industry. I mean, we're going breakneck speed everywhere. You know, the cost of equipment changes overnight. New installation methods change overnight. I think one of the bigger causes is that we have a huge workforce. And the vast majority by the numbers came into the workforce through rooftop resi. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I am thrilled that you've chosen to spend this time with me and excited to bring you today's guest. So what do a charter school, cheap Wi-Fi sensors, and a National Geographic centerfold have to do with building a clean energy career? Well, today's entrepreneur credits all three as keys to the success of his current business. John Chimanis is a co-founder and managing director of Kendall Sustainable Infrastructure. And our discussion swings from what to consider in a career change to lessons learned from working in a predominantly coal-fired portfolio. John found a way to merge his distrust of the stock market, love of real assets, and passion for doing good while doing well, and has carved out a slice of the market that he's dubbed value-added finance. Today, you can learn how John and his team achieve what they refer to as a frictionless closing while building long-term value and relationships with their development partners. A special thanks to listener and KSI employee, Mr. John Stroud, for helping get John Shimanis on the show today. Be sure to stick all the way to the end because John and I actually do get into some of the psychology of project development, project pricing, and more. I'll also encourage you to head to mysuncast.com and check out nearly 200 other inspiring and influential leaders' stories. Get on the mailing list so that we can stay in touch and you'll know when the next episode drops. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we are going to take another look at the project finance side of the business, project development, etc. My guest for today's episode is Mr. John Chimanis. John is the co-founder and managing director of Kindle Sustainable Infrastructure, KSI, as it's better known. KSI is a real assets investment firm with about $150 million in assets under management, making direct investments into distributed-scale infrastructure like clean energy and water. And today, we're going to learn more about how and why their fund works and what you, uh, what you can learn from someone who's been in the trenches since 2005. John, welcome to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. It's great to be here. Would you help paint for me a picture of the arc uh, of how you got to clean energy? I think for, uh, for those unfamiliar, you are based in Boston and you've done uh, a fair amount of work not clean energy related. So help me understand how you came to learn more about sustainability and clean energy and, and when you kind of knew this was where your career was going to be focused. I'll take it all the way back because I think the, the story flows together a little bit better. I studied uh, finance uh, at Villanova undergraduate, and I knew promptly I did not want to go work on Wall Street. So I gave a year of my life as a volunteer teacher uh, in an inner city here in Boston, a town called Dorchester. And while I was there, I met some folks obviously like-minded, but they, they said, you know, we can do this ourselves. We can start a, a charter school. And we can really reach this population in different ways and, you know, have a deeper reach. So I joined a 
couple of folks that we were there with in starting this charter school. Um, we ran it for about four or five years. I, I did everything from um, fundamentally, I was sort of the, the finance business head director. And, you know, so the day-to-day operations were all under me. But I also was a volunteer. I was also a substitute teacher. I was the dean of students for the first six months. Uh, wore many hats. Uh, it was incredibly rewarding. I, I wanted to change the world. Really, it got me out of bed in the morning, knowing that I was making a positive impact, and you know, just just having that sort of influence or that sort of a uh, impact is is really what got me going. After doing that for a handful of years, I sort of realized you know, I'm not sure I want to be in education long term. A, I wanted to start a family and wanted to have some, you know, some cash, be able to provide for my family. Also, yeah, I didn't see if I was going to go into, you know, really, you know, the public sector from there or what sort of a school would be the right next move for me. So I went to business school. I was paying for business school. So day one, I said, I need a game plan. I'm not just going to waste my time here and dilly dally and, you know, just further my education, but I'm actually going to change my career. As a career changer, one of the things that became aware to me pretty early on was you can usually change one of two things about yourself. You could change your industry or you could change your function within that industry. And I was in finance. I decided I would stay in finance, but I would pick a new industry. It would be hard for me to say, I'm going to change an industry and change my function, go into marketing in a whole new industry. I just so happened to get National Geographic at the time, and it was the it was the it was the article was a peak oil, so it's got you know this this rusty old gas pump on the cover, and you know everybody's predicting peak oil at the time. Price of oil is going to two hundred bucks, all this crazy stuff, and you know I'm just fascinated by this article. Just like wow, energy is really interesting. And you're halfway through it, and you know National Geographic they've got the the fold out picture right, and in it is. A wind turbine blade with about 60, 70 people standing shoulder to shoulder in it, in front of it. I looked at it. I said, this is science fiction. This is really cool looking stuff, but there's no way this is real. I go on a read and I start doing my research. And, you know, at this time, 2000, it was 2005, all the big banks in Europe were investing in it. You know, HSH, Nordbank, Dexia, BNP Paribas. It told me it was real uh, is what it really did. Uh, so I started my career in clean energy that day. I started searching for companies. I started figuring out how could I penetrate, how could I enter, and it was through financial modeling is pretty much how I got my first thing. And fortunate to get an internship with a local company, and then the rest is history. And so you started exploring in 2005 uh, the only uh, really viable not hydro uh, renewable energy in the world, which was. Uh, that was that was actually actually booming and had credibility, which is wind. Coincidentally, 2005 was when, uh, as we both know, uh, California was just about to start coming online, and uh, Spain had been at a fevered pitch with solar. Germany, uh, as well, with their feed-in tariffs. Uh, you rightly looked to Europe and saw a foreshadowing of what uh, was to come, no doubt, in the United States. Before I get into kind of how you dug, like how you dug your heels in, one of the things I want to point out, you know, I mentioned that you're in Boston. For those of us uh, entrepreneur startup junkies uh, who are familiar, one of, if not the the most well-recognized entrepreneur program in the world is at Babson College and you went to Babson. Is that why you chose Babson was the entrepreneur track? It was, yeah. I always sort of had a a desire to to birth something, to grow something uh, that was sort of my own. The path I that I took, the one that I really thought made the most sense for me was, you know, go into a, a larger company for a while and, and learn, learn the industry, see if this is something that I can do. I mean, and and then go out. So I worked for, gosh, just about five years with Edison Mission Energy out in Southern California, sister company of EIX. I want to, I really want to understand this. I think it's an interesting move from a career perspective. You're for all intents and purposes, an, a teacher slash entrepreneur, teach for America, created a charter school, learned how to run a business, decided, okay, I'm going to go to Babson. Babson, uh, as I mentioned, one of the true uh, training grounds for forward thinking entrepreneurs. It makes sense that 
you also get some training on how to run big companies, not just startups. And you decided coming out of Babson that you wanted to go into a big company and learn and figure out what you didn't know that you didn't know, I'm, I propose, uh, about the industry on effectively on someone else's dime instead of starting your own company. What do you feel like was core to your learning at Babson that you didn't necessarily expect? Oh, gosh. Uh, first of all, I, I think the world of Babson. And I actually am an adjunct professor there now. I teach a class. The most valuable thing I got, believe it or not, was the international exposure. I did not expect that. Babson is probably about 50% international. I promptly decided that those were going to be the people that I was going to be friends with because I can learn so much more from them. There's such a richness in these people's experiences. And that was incredible for me. I mentioned in our pre-interview, there's so many similarities. I knew coming out of grad school that I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> Unlike you, I wanted to go and work for a manufacturing company or Clorox or something like that and get in their marketing training program. I knew that was the right idea, but I had an un unbelievable opportunity to start my own solar company right when the California Solar Initiative was coming out and couldn't pass that up. Three, four years later, I found myself at Trina doing exactly what I thought I should have been doing when I got out of grad school. <laughs> Tell me about Mission Energy and how you feel like that gave you the firmament that you needed for what you're doing today. It was an incredible time. You know, I came in, we're talking pre-financial crisis. Uh, the coal was a 10,000 megawatt independent power producer with anything and everything energy related. They were doing it, right? We had project development. We had Coal was our major footprint. We had wind, we had solar, we had natural gas, we had some retail exposure, we had a, a proprietary trading book. It, it was phenomenal. The, the education, the experience I got from you know, what the company did was you couldn't train, you couldn't teach any of that. And I was fortunate to come in to it. And really, I think it's, it's a pretty unique thing in renewables. I think a lot of people come right out of whatever they're doing, they go right into renewables and, and that's it. That's, that's what they know. You know, I, I would sit down in meetings and they'd say, okay, let's talk about the coal <laughs> because we were a coal company, you know, <laughs> and you learn a lot about, about energy when you learn about a lot about where it came from, right? What is the history of electricity and power in the United States? So that's sort of part one. And part two, again, it comes back to people. We had a small group of really investment people that were just incredible. I had such a great team. I was fortunate to be a pretty junior person, probably the, the first junior person that they added to this team of, uh, you know, fairly experienced veterans. And, you know, I would sit in on these meetings of people, everyone around the room has got 20 years plus of experience developing projects, you know, and the guys would sit down or the woman would sit down and say, yeah, you know, I developed coal and then I developed gas and you know, maybe I developed some nuke and now I'm doing wind. I mean, that was a story, you know, and you sit around and, and they talk about like the what ifs. Development is all about the what ifs. And they would bring up these stories and blow my mind. It's like, no way, you know, and, and it always felt like there was resistance. Like, why aren't we going ahead? Why aren't we going ahead? It's like, well, let's just get this little piece of risk out of the way. That's not a lot of risk. Don't worry about it. The, you know, they would say, well, they tell a story and you're just like, wow, that's real. And then you'd go down the path and inevitably, you know, something would go sideways and then be like, oh yeah, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> yeah. Do you have an example of some of the stories that they would tell you that you kind of were, uh, you were scratching your head about until you actually experienced why? Like how, how they had already been through, like gotten their scars. Oh gosh. Um, well, I'll give you, I'll give you a story that happened to, that, that happened to me on a project. We were developing 150 megawatt wind project in South Texas. It was across a couple of large ranches, two or three large ranches, about 40, I think they called them, um, uh, Ranchitas, maybe small, very, very small little pieces. And then, then we had a transmission line that had to connect the project. Project was 95% developed. We just needed to get one, literally we had to, we had to go across one la landowner in order to get the transmission line connected to the grid. The landowner was in the project already. They had a bunch of turbines already. This was just a separate parcel of land that they owned closer to the road. You know, we kind of said, yeah, maybe there's some risk here. Not sure, but you know, shouldn't be a big deal. 
senior management said, we're not closing on this project until you get that piece of land. So, you know, okay, sure. And, you know, no problem. We hadn't bought the project yet from the developers. They said, don't worry about it. Everything's going to go fine. So, you know, we, we put the, the note into the landowner. Landowner says, sure, no problem. Just talk to my lawyer. And we said, you know, but we know you. No, no problem here. Just, you know, this is it. This is what, you know, we need to do. And the guy came back and he said, yeah, so um, do you have any other ways to get to the grid? And, you know, yeah, probably, sure. You know, okay, fine. Well, here's my ask. And he wanted an enormous, enormous ransom to get across his property. And, you know, it, it's the sort of thing, it's like you hear it. It's like the last, the last mile of transmission. And it happens like 10 times out of 10. They know it and they're going to get you. Another observation that I've made uh, is that the people I find in the industry who seem to be thinking in orders of magnitude, uh, sort of differently or higher order, if you will, than the rest are folks that have traditional power producer experience, right? Either they worked at a utility or they worked at an IPP, uh, an oil and gas company. It seems to me like there's a different level of training. How would you explain that or couch that? Solar in particular, it's a very fast moving industry. I mean, we're going breakneck speed everywhere. You know, the cost of equipment changes overnight. New installation methods change overnight. I think one of the bigger causes is that we have a huge workforce. And the vast, vast majority by the numbers came into the workforce through rooftop resi. And maybe they evolved into CNI or they evolved into utility. But I think, you know, you still buy the numbers, the vast majority are in the resi sales business. And it's a, it's a sales business. It is not necessarily um, a technical project development type of business. And I just think that, you know, that evolution necessarily means that they're not going to have the, the depth of training when it comes to the, the detailed aspects of project closing or due diligence or development, project management skills. You know, the resi, you're dealing with a, a single one or two decision makers in a household. You pull a, an over-the-counter permit and, and more or less you can mo move. The larger project development takes, it's, you know, somebody described it to me once as, you know, you are the conductor of an orchestra when you're developing a project. You are not the attorney. You are not the engineer. You are not the, the environmental scientist. You're the conductor and you need to know when to pull people in and, and, and bring them out. And it's, it's never what you know, because we're just generalists. There's a, a thousand things I don't know, but it's identifying when I know that I don't know it. And, and that, I think that right there is really the trait that, that you're looking for in really successful developers. Along with that, do, were there any models, management tools, et cetera, that perhaps you learned at Mission that now serve you in your efforts at KSI? You know, our large, in large part, our, our model is somewhat similar in that at the end of the day, ultimately, we, we seek to deploy capital. They, their objective was to deploy capital into owning projects. Um, and we work with development partners to, to achieve that. And I think the way that we go about it is where we've made some changes to the process and the structure that I think has been beneficial. I, you know, I, I believe it's, it's, it's been maybe some improvement upon the way they did it. Not across the board, but, you know, the, the general business uh, approach. So you're at Mission for, was it four or five years? How did you get the idea or why did it occur to you that now was the right time to step out on your own? start thinking about forming an entity that you had control over. Can you walk me through that process and what problem specifically you began to center around solving? I moved to California for the position, loved it. It was great. I was with my wife. We had a fantastic time, but our plan was always to move back to the East Coast. The time that I started to look to move back was 2010, right in the heat of the financial crisis or at the bottom of the financial crisis. Uh, there were no positions available. Uh, she's a teacher. She got a job teaching. And our plan was the first person to get a job will move back. So we moved back. And I was fortunate. Again, I had great, great mentors. I love the people that I worked with at Mission. They you know, enabled me to stay on working pretty much remotely from the greater Boston area. 
knowing that the project, the, the company was going through some financial hardships, both the financial crisis, there was a coal fleet, the price of electricity, number of things sort of uh, converging on the, the company ultimately heading towards bankruptcy. They knew it. I knew it. It was a nice sort of platform. But I was looking for a job, to be honest. Nobody was hiring. Nobody was deploying capital. Everyone was just holding, pulling the bank money, getting anything that they could get and just holding on to it. So coming back to the East Coast, I didn't really have all that much of a game plan. I was a little bit risk averse and I wasn't finding an opportunity. So I did say, well, maybe maybe now might be a time. I put a couple of things together, uh, started working an energy consultant for a, a retail electricity type business. And at the same time, I you know started to make a connection with my current partner, Ken Lehman. Ken had been running private equity investments through a family of funds. Um, they were really straight private equity style, uh, secondaries, fund of funds, uh, some opportunistic opportunistic, opportunistic type of investments. Uh, he had done a little bit of infrastructure and we kind of connected and both started talking about the way we saw the world. Um, I'm sort of shared, you know, my perspectives on, you know, infrastructure, the, the, the attractiveness of it as an asset class, you know, that it's, it's, it's hard, it's physical, it's not, you know, speculative, it's not a stock price, it's not, you know, a paper gain, it's an asset gain, you want a real asset. The lack of correlation to public markets, or right? all these things that the markets are now really getting. But in 2012, 11, 2012, 2013, when we were talking about these, there really weren't private funds doing this. You know, there were one or two, right? You had your Brookfield that's been around forever. You had a couple of other massive, massive funds, but there was nothing small. So we started looking at the opportunity set, and this is where I started bringing together the things that I saw, which was number one, distributed generation is coming in a big way. Number two, the ESG movement in investing is coming in a big way. And number three, we had an opportunity to carve a real niche for ourselves uh, because there wasn't really anybody else doing it at the time. So we put together a fund strategy focused on distributed generation and sustainable assets. So those sustainable assets look like solar. They look like distributed wind. They look like water treatment facilities. Anything that we could sort of say has you know, it's producing a good that's necessary for life, doing it in a sustainable way, no real harm, and it has a, a fixed life to it. It has a fixed asset value to it. Those what we what we built our first fund around. Now, I have two questions about your first fund. The first is, how long did you expect it to take versus how long it took to actually get that fund together and closed? <laughs> and then, and I can't imagine that you had enough money set aside to endure and weather that, uh, that storm. So how did you make ends meet while that was coming together? Yeah, it took longer. We, <laughs> uh, we raised less and, and, and it was harder than you'd ever imagine. I, I don't come from the asset management world. So when you're raising a fund, you're technically in the asset management world. You're no longer in the energy world. You're dealing with investment advisors. You're dealing with high net worth people. You're dealing with institutions. You're dealing with these groups called investment consultants that sort of due diligence you and then decide whether you're good enough for others to invest in you. Took us, I want to say about three years to close the fund. We were fortunate in that Probably after about a year and a half, we got our first anchor investor in, uh, which wasn't for much, but it was for something. For people who constantly reach out to me and say, hey, we want to raise some money. Who can we connect with? And their answer is like, we need this to happen in the next you know, four to six months. This is real, folks. Like My answer is always, no, I hope you've got a runway of a year. <laughs> like, and Is that, yeah, is that what your uh, experience is? Yeah, uh, but... I love, I mean, I'm, it's great to hear that, but, but obviously like that anchor, and if this is your experience, I'd love to hear it, but that anchor investor is what precipitates everything else, right? And that's always the hardest piece of the puzzle to find. It means so much that that first anchor investor, the group that sort of says, I'm willing to take a risk on you because the, the investment world wants to know, A, that you've done it before, B, that you've done it with this same group of people before. You know, and C, they want to know who else is doing it, <laughs> which, you know, it, you're constantly, you know, manufacturing. Oh, yes, we're talking with so-and-so and, you know, trying to 
kind of put that story together. Exactly. And it's not to say you said manufacturing. I don't want to give the wrong idea to the listener that it's a classic fake, fake it till you make it type of thing, but you are in many ways posturing to pro potential investors about the kinds of peers who are also uh, at the same level of diligence or further along considering the fund. What does this actually mechanically look like for others who haven't been this, through this process? Do you actually get a lead investor who drops money or is it just an MOU? Like at what point do the funds flow? How does this, how does that get structured? Gosh, there, I guess lots of different ways that folks can do it. You know, some people do get an MOU. Sometimes it's, you know, people want to do a single project. They'll say, I'll, I'll do, I, I will commit up to this much, but, but it's continued upon you doing one or two or three real projects with, with, with the money first. Show me, prove it. You know, a lot of it is, is the proof is in the pudding. So therefore, you got to find some way to bridge the capital and get a, a first sort of anchor project done or signature project before folks will really fall in line. Yeah. Well, what, what you get is th then that creates a lot of what we've seen in the solar industry, which I've never seen in any other power in segment. A lot of I call them like fundless sponsors or, or people in our industry that represent, I've got capital, I speak for capital, but they really don't. They're much more of an intermediary. And what they're trying to do is get control of a project from a developer, get it off the street, and then they're going to go and try to raise around it or convince an investor to come in. And that's a lot of times, you know, sort of the other side of, of what's going on. So one of the pieces that comes up for me as I'm hearing sort of thinking through how would I be, what would I have been thinking about in this process or what's missing from the dialogue for someone who doesn't know how this works and it's the demand, right? So you're raising money, but you're not raising money for nothing. You're raising money to fund things. How are you simultaneously building demand for the capital that you ostensibly are out raising? I mean, one of the things we, we really delicately danced on is we would talk with developers about what we intended to do, but we were really cautious. I never wanted to sign a term sheet with a developer without having the capital behind us. I, I just didn't, we couldn't do, I couldn't do that with a straight face. Uh, lock up a deal without having, you know, the committed funds. Yeah. So, you know, we, before, one of the things you'd never seen before that the solar has is these people who quote unquote represent capital that they don't actually have. Exactly. So we just didn't want to do that. I mean, a lot of our business, the quarter of our business is integrity. The quarter of it is, is relationships. We're not transactional. And yeah. I, I could talk more a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask wrong. you the differentiation for KSI in a world where, there are beginning to be a, a lot more players who see this convergence around distributed generation. There are obvious, like I'll call them sort of iconic or big time players getting into this piece of the business. So how do, and effectively at its core, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you are uh, a layer in the project development cycle where someone who doesn't have the financial expertise or access to capital as a developer can come to you, take the, instead of having their own sort of in-house project finance team or, or CFO who has to do all this work themselves, they can partner with you. So tell me how you differentiate yourself in the marketplace in, in, a, in a becoming crowded development space. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think probably the best way to think of us is a, we're a development partner. We really are a developer. We're, we're closing out projects with takeout capital. Ultimately, our goal is ownership, but we're doing the development along the way to to own the assets. Can you just define takeout capital? Sure. Takeout capital, somebody's got to build the project. Some equity has to come in and own the asset at the end of the day. It's not just putting debt and tax equity. Somebody's going to be the owner. The takeout capital is that cash that comes in that builds the project, that funds the project, that owns the project. That's the takeout. And why is it called takeout? What are they taking out? Uh, you're taking out the original developer. So the original developer that's kind of put, you know, their their sweat equity in, you know, going to all the meetings, putting together the permits, spending money on, you know, different you know, studies, et cetera. They're getting bought out, so they're earning a development fee, uh, and then we're taking and then we're taking the the SPV, the special purpose vehicle, the project. Right. Essentially, helping that developer mitigate the long term risk of being able to build the project, continuing to build it on their own capital. Exactly. Exactly. We're taking it to the next stage. You know, it's a very different cost of capital being in the development world and being in the ownership world. Development capital cost is it's enormous, right? If somebody said it was twenty or thirty percent, I wouldn't be surprised. 
takeout capital, ownership capital is, you know, we're in the, in the single digits, the tremendously different, you know, risk return profile. And so we bridge that gap. So it's a natural transaction point when a project is, you know, essentially developed or mostly developed, which is, you know, when we start to come around, then it can make sense to change hands. Yeah, I appreciate that. And what you had said in a previous call with a, that I, that stuck out in my mind is you layer on top of the capital, the relationships that you can bring both internally as sort of mentors and coaches to the developers and externally with the with the capital that you bring to bear to help developers take their at-risk capital off the table. I think that was, you elegantly said it that way the last time we chatted and I, I remember that. I'm glad you wrote that down. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Warrior. You know, I've always thought that commercial solar should just have an easy button for financing, the way that residential solar typically has had. But credit has always been a gating issue. Until now. Energetic Insurance levels the playing field so that project developers can now offer the same electricity savings to small and medium-sized businesses that were previously reserved for the large commercial buyers in the U.S. alone. They're Interrate credit cover policy provides the missing link, that easy button I mentioned earlier, for commercial solar that a FICO score provided to residential solar, which enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects. You can check it out at mysuncast.com forward slash energetic and submit your projects today. Hey, 70% of projects qualify and the review process is easy. Go to mysuncast.com forward slash energetic. Hey, are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize the ROI for your customer? Extensible Energy's Demand X software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches that data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes, increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Head to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your project and to learn more about Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers. You can learn more at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. So let, let me talk a little bit about relationships. The industry is getting crowded and commoditized in some regards, not across the board. Um, but people are looking at these projects as this is a bond. I'm going to buy and sell a bond like I'm going to buy and sell it on an exchange. I don't think it can ever get to that point because there is ultimately risk in these projects. So what we've decided to do is. Number one, first and foremost, deals are second. People are first. We always want to build a relationship with the developer and we want to get to know them personally. We want them to know us personally. These are, you know, these are heavily contracted things. And you've got, you know, PPAs, power purchase agreements, you've got your interconnection agreements, you've got all these different leases. And you've got purchase and sale agreements. And everybody knows the story of the buyer that promises to pay the top dollar, gets a developer under exclusivity, and then starts to take away pennies and dimes and quarters because the project isn't what they thought it was. And we never, ever, ever want to do that. I just think that's terrible. I've been in business. And that's one of the things that I've seen before large businesses commonly, which tend to have more power in a relationship, a small developer says, wow, I tied up with this billion dollar fund. This is the best thing in the world. And then all of a sudden the muscles start to flex. Yeah. Um, we they believe in rights. Yeah, very little leverage. They, they would have no leverage at that time if they promised their project. And then, you know, and then they're basically at the whims of we're going to reduce your price. So we decided we decided needed to do was we need to value people. And, and it's, it wasn't even a conscious decision. It's just that's the way that, that we are. That's the way that we think. So we, we value the people. We work with developers in many cases that maybe they haven't done 50 or 40 or 30 projects before. Maybe they're, they're newer. They're crossing over from Resi into CNI or, or the DG market. Um, maybe, they're, you know, maybe their business was real estate before and, and they're coming into renewables. Maybe they're a developer that's been burned enough times to realize, hey, a partner that's not going to use a contract as a weapon is what I really need here. So our, 
our model is focused on repeat business. We work with developers in a repeat business situation. Rarely do we ever come up to a bid scenario for a portfolio and drop down cash because it's a one-off and it's a take it or leave it type of situation. And usually there's blood left on the table and the likelihood of a second transaction together, it's not very high. We're really trying to get to what we call a, a frictionless closing. And what I mean by that is, is we have a relationship. We have a purchase and sale agreement that, that's an overarching purchase and sale agreement. And then we start to work together on projects, really developing projects. And we co-develop these projects by helping developers, by bringing in our consultants, by bringing in our expertise, by really, number one, problem solving for them helping them get more done. If we can help them bring one more project across the line in a calendar year, that's worth so much more to their bottom line than getting another eight pennies on a particular transaction. Is there something that you look for in developers in particular as, a, as you start to do diligence that tells you this is a, a right developer for us? How do you start to parse that? Yeah. So, I mean, there are probably a couple of technical things that we look for. You know, we would look for somebody that has a regional advantage in their market for some reason that we believe they have a regional advantage. And number two, we look for, you know, strong project management skills. Those are kind of two technical things. But the, the relationship side, a lot of it is, you know, it's intuition. It's Doing our, doing our due diligence on the people we're going to get into a relationship with, how have they acted in the past? Hmm. You know, what sort of, what sort of, what's a, what's a way that you would figure that out? As big as the industry is, it's also really small. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, and, you know, one bad deed, a lot of people are willing to bury that under the carpet, but usually one bad deed is two bad deeds and maybe it's not a bad deed, uh, you know, but maybe it's just the style of doing it. So, you know, when we meet people, we, we interview them, quote unquote, you know, lack of a better phrase. We really get to know them. I mean, it's, it's like a, not to make a crude analogy, but it's like dating. You date a lot of people before you find somebody that you, you know, you really want to settle down with or get into a relationship with. And in the sense of an how do you find that out? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, so in the sense of an interview, in an interview, I would ask for references for a candidate. So what are, who are viable references for a project developer that you're interviewing? A lot of times, you know, we'll, we will look for, again, it's all regional. Relationships tend to be, you know, really regional. But, you know, pretty quickly you can try triangulate on, on somebody and how they've done their business. You know, you could see a lot in, either in papers or in proceedings or filings or, you know, there's a lot of stuff that makes it through the public records. And just, you know, I'm not saying that people did something horrible or egregious, but we're not looking to do business with litigious people. That's just not something that we're looking to do business with. And the developers, you know, there, there is a risk of that, right? I mean, the, this is a, this is a, a challenge that, that you can run into. That's an example of, of something. A lot of times we look for people that, you know, we can have a handshake and, and know that that handshake is good. Know that their word is their strongest bond. I never want to have to ever open a contract after I've, you know, negotiated and put it to bed. You know, I believe that that's it. We did it. We agreed. And, and that's what we're going to do. When people start acting outside the bounds, then you've got trouble. And, you know, everybody knows it. I mean, that's, that's what happens. And, and when, again, when you get into pressure cooker situations, uh, you know, high pressure bid situations or, you know, sales environments, tensions run high, you know, pennies are at stake at that point. And you know, we're looking to sort of say, hey, how, how can we help you? We want to be a helper to our development partners. I mean, literally, you could talk to any of the partners that we've worked with. And they will talk about the things that we've done because we're trying to help them. You know, the, either the PPAs that we negotiated with or a project that wasn't, wasn't so great, but we went ahead with it or concessions or, you know, and it has to be a, a give and a take. We're really looking to, what I, what I believe our mission is, you know, we're to own assets at the same point to, to grow good local businesses. I believe... Good developers are regional developers, and I want to grow their business. I want to keep them engaged in the process, involved in the project. I want the landowners and the off-takers and the community members to still look back to that original developer and say, hey, I know those guys. I respect those guys, and I still do business with them, and I talk to them on a regular basis because it's, it's, it's beneficial for all of us, right? If they have a great reputation, 
then they do more deals, then we do more deals, then we grow together. And as opposed to scorched earth, here's a portfolio that we cobbled together, buy it, sell it, you know, fight over the price. And then the developer entirely walks away, says, my hands are done of this. I don't own it anymore. And, you know, or the IPP comes in and says, you developer, I don't even know your name anymore. Please step away from this project, <laughs> right? I mean, it works both ways. Both sides know how to do that. Your fund end up being mostly uh, clean energy or solar related, or are you still do are you still looking at water and other infrastructure projects? So fund one, which is closed, fully invested, all solar. Fund two, we're very proud that we closed our second fund at the end of last year in December. Yeah, raised a ton more money than we you know uh, than fund one. Really, really proud of that. Um, we're it's it's solar today. Our, our actual investments are solar. We've got a, a term sheet. Uh, with some small hydro, um, and we've been very active, quite active, getting to know the the, the water space and uh, opportunities and the players, and um, I see that being a, a new frontier. You know, as the solar market, if it were to get, you know, in our segment, if it were to get overcrowded, we would need to to move on. I think the capital that's been coming in so far, it actually fits very nicely into our business plan, which has always been by rather small systems, aggregate them, operate them, do them the best that we can. And then, you know, and then potentially at some point in the future have, you know, somebody you know, more strategic or larger come in, you know, that's never our immediate focus on a deal. It's always just get the deal, own it and operate it. That's really our, our core focus. What's the average deal or portfolio, however you choose to express it? So typical project size is called four or 500 kilowatts on up to about five megawatts yeah. on a on a single project asset, and with a developer, you know, we're what we say is, you know, we usually like to say like to do about five megawatts in a given year together. Yeah. Can we we can do less than that? Obviously, we can do do much more than that. And how do you source developers? How do you market KSI to actually get people to come to you? Um, you know, we use you know traditional kind of channels. I suppose we probably could be better about it. We we've been a little bit slower, sleepier, quiet, under the radar uh, than maybe some of our competitors with maybe not as much capital, but, you know, better branding and marketing. You know, we, we go to conferences. Um, we've got some, you know, some you know, good networks of folks. Um, we do some social media, but probably an area that we can do better at is my guess. Do you find that there is a common problem that needs to be solved in the development cycle or in solar generally? Like, what, Where are the areas where you see deals that continue to get stuck or where you wish there were just more uh, education or, uh, or development around a specific piece? I think a lot, of, a lot of newer developers underestimate land, land control, land rights. And we talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, what is involved with actually title. And you know, a lot, a lot of folks say, well, don't worry, the finance group will take care of the title at the end of the day, right? They sort of push it off. And what they miss is that it costs practically nothing to pull a preliminary title report. And you learn so much information day one about the characteristics of your site. Uh, I think that's one area that, you know, the other thing, and this is a little bit more industry-wide, discounting the price of our power is something that just burns my fuse. We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it, right? We come in and we say, hey, I'll sell you my power from my solar project at a 20% discount to your rate that you're paying already. Won't you sign up with us? And then the next guy comes in and says, well, I'll give you a discount of 30%, right? In a competitive, in a competitive development market. Oh, I'll discount 30, 40%. You know? I've had guys come to me and say, hey, I've got 50% off their rate. Isn't this great? And I look at them and I say, this is terrible. We sell power for a living. What are you doing? And I think as an industry, I really want us to wake up. And so it's chronic, but I think as an industry, I want us to wake up. We should be price takers. We should not be price discounters. And I think that's a big thing that I don't know how to, to remedy it because it's a competitive marketplace. And there's always four or five developers kind of fighting for the lowest price. But that mentality of the lowest price is, it's a bad it's a. It's not good for business, in my yeah. Opinion. It also forces you to try to figure out other, we'll call them tricks, to harvest uh, gains in a in an otherwise good project. Exactly. I mean, you know, you, if you can price take at 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 some point at some rate, and then you're discounting, you're leaving money on the table. You're 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 extracting value from your project prematurely. Mm, yeah. When you say price take, can you help me understand what that means within the context of a power contract? 
Sure, sure. So in, in principle, many of these projects uh, the, that we're doing are, are net metered or, or virtual net metered. So they, they get a bill credit at a, at a certain rate, uh, the retail rate or whatever the net metering credit rate is. And in order to induce a, a buyer of the power, we sell it at a discount. So we say, well, you're going to get 14 cents on your bill, but I'll sell you power for my project for 12. My point is, well, if, we, if they're getting 14, why aren't they paying us 14? That would be price taking. And I don't, I don't mean to you know, grossly oversimplify it. I know it's a bit more challenging than that. However, you know, when people start to say, well, I'm giving a 30% or a 35% discount, I, I start scratching my head. A 5% discount, a 10% discount, it's a discount. They're saving. It's, you know, the way, and again, this goes back to traditional power. You know, when you bid in wholesale, you turn on your generator when the price signal to you is high enough. Reverse auction, right? So you, you take the price. So as a, a wind generator or a solar generator, you're always on. And what you get is that highest marginal price. When that last generator turns on, you all get that price for your for your product. I think with the industry, I would love to have be a topic of discussion at SPI. I would love for people to start talking about why are we selling our product, which is just as good as every other product at such a deep discount. John, I'd love to know as we uh, sort of turn the corner here towards the end of the interview, I want to, to peer into some of the lessons learned in your career and how you stay sharp as an individual and entrepreneur. Are there any particular key lessons or takeaways from important mentors over the course of your career and your life? Yeah, I think the first one is do unto others as you'd have done to you. Uh, that's number one, two and three, probably. That's pretty much where, where, where it starts and ends. For me, in a business relationship, there's not going to be a, a mutual uh, reciprocal respect. It, it's just not a great place. And, you know, I think, you know, I think you try to follow that in all sorts of transactions and personal, professional, and that's really key. Key. Maybe, maybe two others that, that kind of jumped to mind. One might be attention to detail really matters. And this is really in, in taking wherever you're at in your career, you know, being a corporate career, being an entrepreneur, anything, no matter what you're doing, attention to detail really matters. I think, you know, when mistakes start getting made, your credibility is immediately shot. And it's really, really, really hard to get that back. And, and one, of my, one of the folks that I worked with, uh, Admission, just was fantastic about that. And, you know, at first I was like, wow, this guy is so particular. Why is he really, you know? And, and it turned out that, you know, this was some of the best lessons that I ever got. And, and maybe the last one is make your boss look good and you'll succeed. And that, that also goes for if you're in corporate or you're an entrepreneur. Somebody's always your boss. You're always answering to somebody. Maybe it's your customer. Maybe it's your investor. Maybe it's your board. Make your boss look good and you'll succeed. And I think those things are probably the sound bites I throw out. Along that line, any advice for fellow entrepreneurs that are currently you know, in this uh, startup life? If I hadn't been at a company that was crumbling, I don't know that I would have gone out and started my business at that time. I think it's kind of keep your keep an open mind, uh, but but stay the course. Uh, perseverance uh, and positivity. I, I guess perseverance and positivity are probably things I have. To, I would have to say to entrepreneurs. You know, first and foremost, be grateful. Thank God. Thank, thank. Be thankful for what you do have for the for what's between your ears. Uh, that that incredible tool that you have. You know, set your course and persevere. I hear a lot about startups pivoting, pivot, 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 you know, and we're not what we thought we were. And, you know, through Babs and I can't tell you how many businesses I saw that were like, oh, we're this today. And, you know, a week later, be like, oh, how's it going? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're pivoting and we're doing something totally different. And, you know, there's a certain value in being flexible and, and reacting. And there's a certain risk that you take by constantly pivoting. It, it takes time to really create and form and only with perseverance and really staying the course and not getting distracted along the way. For me, I think that was one of the things that, that really I found was, you know, as sort of put the fund, the strategy together, made our first deck along the way, it was, there were a thousand things that came up. It was like, well, what if we just did this? Or what if we just did that? Or there's this guy over here, he's got some money and he wants us to do it this way. And, you know, and it was just like, no, 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 we're doing our, we're doing this. So it's that perseverance factor. Yeah, those shiny objects do uh, do call you throughout the process, right? And you have to have you have to have that centering 
focus and goal. Because it's all pie in the sky until it's real, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you're like, well, that one could be better. But you have to believe that it can be real. And you have to have a foundational understanding and expertise and validation points and milestones along the way that that show that it can, in fact, be real. And, and the pivot is real as well. Um, it's not to be underestimated. There's a reason why it has its place in the folklore of startup. But I think you're right that far too often people, you know, they'll stop digging uh, a foot away from the diamond. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a great phrase. <laughs> Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Pivot definitely has its its right place. Well, one of the ways that the leaders I've met sort of get these ideas into their mind is through reading. I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. Is there a particular book or, or set of books that you recommend or gift the most and why? There's a handful of them, but uh, the first one that always comes to mind is Success Through, po- through Positive Mental Attitude by Napoleon Hill. And that was given to me by my best friend, Colin Flanagan. He had a tattoo on his, on his arm, a PMA. I said, Colin, what's, what's PMA? He always has you know, great tattoos. And I said, what's PMA? And he goes, positive mental attitude. And I kind of laughed. And I said, well, what do you mean? What, you know, of course, positive. He goes, no, 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 no. He's like, there's this book. He's like, you should check it out. And it's really, I, I, it's, it's, like a, uh, it's like a road guide. It's been for me many times. And, yeah, I, I can't believe I haven't actually read this. I've uh, presumed to have read most of what Napoleon Hill had written. And this is a new one for me. So I appreciate that. Uh, right on, right on. Yeah, indeed. So uh, then the other two, the other two are uh, Zig Ziglar, Secrets of Closing the Sale. Ooh, another one. Love, love him, man. Uh, he's, you know, not, not too far away in, uh, in generation either. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, one of my colleagues actually gave me, uh, told me about The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty current book. Many people have heard of that. Uh, I find that to be a, a great, great read as well. It really is. Yeah. Are there any books that have influenced your personal or professional leadership style? Jim Collins, Good to Great. And then a little bit of a curveball. I wouldn't have thought it. It's not a typical business book. It's actually a. Um, I've got a. I've got a, a few kids right now that are uh, young. I got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. Whoa! And somebody, somebody, t- <laughs> somebody turned me onto this book: "How Children Succeed: The Hidden Power of Character" by a gentleman, Paul Tuff. I've learned more about people by reading that book. And, and, and how to work as a leader with my team than you would ever imagine. Wow. Takes it down to the, to the base level of a child and character. It's just fantastic. Yeah, it's funny. I read a similar book. Not, I mean, I don't know if it's similar to this, but which impacted me in a way that you just described. Uh, it's called Easy to Love, Difficult to Discipline. Oh, yeah. It is an amazing book. And I remember... Uh, my wife insisted that I read it and I finally read it after like two or three years of her saying, you really need to read this book. And I'd missed kind of the opportunities to do in-person workshops with, with the author and whatnot. And uh, I read the book and I realized like, this is a, is a Trojan horse book. It is written through the context, through the lens of how to interact with your child, but it is, it's legitimately an adult self-help book on how to think about the way that you show up in the world, which therefore impacts the way your children show up in the world. Exactly. Because they're only, they're just a reflection of you, right? That's like, that's sort of the takeaway is like, you could tell them anything you want to tell them, mm-hmm. but if you don't do what you want them to, to do, that's right. they're, they're not going to do it. And that's sort of the, the thumbnail, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, is there anything on your nightstand? What are you reading now? Anything that, um, is taking your attention. Yeah. So I got into this author, Matthew Kelly. Uh, my mom turned me on to him. There's a book called Resisting Happiness uh, that I've been reading. And you know, it falls under the, uh, under the umbrella of a lot of this uh, positive mental attitude type, positivity, positive thinking. Um, but it puts it inside of a, an umbrella of religious spirituality as well. It's really been quite powerful to, to read this and associate with it. I just, I, just, I just associate so well with the things he's saying. And uh, it, it borrows topics from things like, you know, Slack or uh, The War of Art or, you know, a lot of these other sort of books on, on some of the topics, but it, but it puts a little bit 
bit a little bit more bit more emphasis on on an aspect that that really connects with me and resounds with me. Mm, thank you. I'll have to check that out for sure. And uh, we've gotten. A, an amazing list here from you. I, I'll obviously, as always, link to these on the blog uh, over at mysuncast.com. Well, what, it, John, is there a habit or consistent practice that you feel has given you a particular amount of leverage or impact in your life? I am the type of individual that if I don't believe in what I'm doing, I'm not going to be terribly successful at it. And I realized that early on, which is why I got into education first and then renewable energy. These are things I believe in. I have a passion. Every day I get out of bed, I have a burning passion to do what I'm doing. I know that what I'm doing is right and making a difference. And I don't know that that's necessarily a, a practice, but you know, the practice behind that is gratitude first, perseverance next a positive attitude there and, and keeping that all in the context of we're just people on this earth. So it's all in the context of relationships matter. It's not about, you know, collecting, you know, trinkets. It's mm -hmm. about relationships. So I think that's more of a, a practice. I mean, you know, I, I, I do, I personally, I, you know, yoga is a, is a great grounding and centering thing for me. Um, I think as I continue to grow that, that will continue to be a really important grounding you know, practice, physical practice in my life. I love it. Well, John, I am grateful for the time here today. I know that others are as well. How would folks be able to find more of uh, the work that you're putting out in the world? Are you guys active on social media, LinkedIn, website? Yeah, you know, our website, candlesustainableinfrastructure.com, uh, LinkedIn uh, as well. You could find John Shermanis there very easily. Email straightforward you get me there as well so we're we're not as great on social media um either um facebook or twitter these days but maybe someday we're gonna get there linkedin linkedin we tend to post a bunch yeah that's what i figure and you post uh individually or under the ksi brand usually under the ksi yeah it would be associated with kennel investments and yeah you can find us there do it collaboratively fantastic well i always link to uh the guests relevant details on the blog page so folks will be able to find it there but let's end today as we always do with a bold prediction john what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking what's in your crystal ball oh gosh i don't know that nobody else is tracking this <laughs> but i i feel like i have a strong conviction about it mm -hmm. storage which is big huge i mean we're just scratching the surface of what's coming here I really see the utilities convincing their public utility commissions that they should be allowed to own as much storage and as wherever they want wow. uh, and rate and rate base it. I, I don't I don't necessarily necessarily see it as a as an IPP product. Hmm. I think because it is really more regulation related than anything else. And you know, the utilities as they, as they get more and further and further away. Uh, from even providing, you know, delivering energy, this will be a little bit of their ticket to to bolster their income that maybe they're losing from some of the power sales from that metering. You know, I, I think it's a natural bargain that they should be making with their PUCs, which is, okay, we'll increase the net metering cap, but I get to own all the storage on the system that I want and I get to rate base it. That is a really provocative thought. And I, to believe it or not, in 180 episodes, no one has ever said storage should be rate-based and it's not an IPP product. So there you go. Well, you heard it here. Heard it here first, folks. John Shamanis is the co-founder and managing director of KSI, Kindle Sustainable Infrastructure. And he has helped lay down and dispel uh, the myths, lay down the truths about uh, not only raising money for projects, but developing projects in a way that maintains integrity. John, a real true honor to have you on the show. Thanks to John Stroud for helping us connect. Oh, gosh, Nico, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, I am really, truly honored that you're still here listening. And that puts you in a small group of folks truly dedicated to growing and learning. I learned a ton from John in today's conversation, but I'm frankly more interested to hear what you have learned. Would you mind posting your thoughts on Twitter or LinkedIn and tagging us? I can be found at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O. And uh, you should be able to easily find me on LinkedIn. I'm always eager to hear how this one's landed for you. 
As always, you can find the resources, highlights, book recommendations, and more, along with our social media links, over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, please do consider becoming a Suncast email subscriber and check out our Suncast tribe. If you're listening all the way through this outro, then you are truly a special part of this tribe, and I'd like to learn more about you. So please be on the lookout for our listener survey. You can find it on the homepage. You could also get it in our regular email updates. I'd be honored if you'd take a minute Let me know how I can mold Suncast into something that serves and piques your interest. Subscribe today so you don't miss that email, all right? Thanks again to our sponsors who help make this possible. Energetic Insurance and Extensible Energy, two fantastic companies helping developers and commercial project owners get more. You can learn more about both of these sponsors on our sponsor page at mysuncast.com. You know, I'm really so happy that you've chosen to be here again this week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Kia, Solar Warrior!